0: Welcome back to Real Good by US Bank, a podcast about helpers.
1: The post-George Floyd movement has been quite inspiring to see because it's I've had more conversations in the last few months with non-people of color about people of color issues than ever before in my life. But I also think people need to realize like this is something that the country has dealt with for since the beginning of time, so centuries, and this isn't gonna change in the 2020 decade.
0: I'm Faith Saley, and we are so glad to be able to bring you another season of Real Good. Our first season came about at the onset of the coronavirus crisis. In our efforts to understand where work needed to be done to help communities in need during the pandemic, we learned that the issues they were struggling with didn't crop up during COVID. They're long-standing concerns with roots in racial disparity, socioeconomic opportunity gaps, and so much more. That was last year. And while we didn't really know whether we'd still be dealing with COVID, we absolutely knew the problems we spoke about last season would still be around. So we broadened our scope and sought out more people doing good in and out of the nonprofit world. This season, we're gonna hear from folks spanning different fields and enacting different missions, but one thing remains the same for everyone you're going to meet, their helpers. They're doing real good. This week, our guest is Henri-Pierre Jacques, managing director and co-founder of Harlem Capital. Venture Capital is all about funders giving entrepreneurs a shot at taking their businesses to the next level. But what happens when the people holding the purse strings are a small group of mostly white, mostly male funders, mostly in hoodies? You get people like Henri and organizations like Harlem Capital coming in to change the game. Henri, I was uh, reading your Twitter feed this morning, and one of your uh, keys to success is to dress in real clothes every day. So I have to tell you, only for you. I put on this sweater and jeans because otherwise it would have been me in the t-shirt and the Athleta mom school drop-off pants.
1: Yep. No, it's, it's important to create uh, routines for yourself.
0: I see you have a very professional t-shirt on.
1: Uh, this is my athleisure t-shirt. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, will you pronounce your full name for me?
1: Henri Pierjac.
0: Okay, so you don't really lean into the French pronunciation as much as I've been wanting no, to. No,
1: not 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 while we're in the states.
0: <laughs> do you? W- when you're not in the states, do you pronounce it differently? I mean, you have a your, your family has a Haitian background. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, once you go abroad, people usually say Henri in a little little more uh, French accent. Yeah, but sometimes. there's
0: more to it. It's Pierre Jacques, right? Exactly. Um, you. I mean, these are just some of the uh the bona fides that come with your name uh all these lists you've been on Forbes 30 under 30 Inc uh 30 under 30 Ebony Power 100 Root 100 Crane's New York Rising Star and Business Insider Rising Star um to have star attached to your name um and and power is is that pressure is that responsibility how does that feel
1: No I think you know, at first Forbes was the first one that we got and probably the one that we really wanted the most. because um, it's just the one that you know a lot as when you're you're younger. Um, I think after time you kind of get used to it to some extent. You know, you still wear it and you still understand its meaning and power.
0: Can you tell me about your introduction to to the world of investing? How how young were you and, and how was your curiosity piqued?
1: Definitely my mom. Um it's funny, I was I was texting my mom about this last week. Because um, I saw a quote from Robert Kiyosaki, who's the, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, which was probably the first business book I read, which was in middle mm. school. My mom my mom gave it to me. He has a board game called Cash Flow, which is basically like Monopoly for Adults. It's like real, like you, you use mortgages and there's interest payments. So it's a lot more real life. Um, I was just texting her that. And I was like, that probably was the most influential book of my life. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was middle school. I, I read that book. Uh, I started trading stocks. My mom, I uh, used to get allowance if I did my work. Uh, it was $25 every two weeks. But if I gave my mom back $25, she would double it and put it into stocks. I couldn't get it back, but she would double and put it in stocks. So Home Depot has actually been my best performing stock ever um, because that was a stock I invested in when I was in high school for my my chores. And you realize the compounding value of interest and dividends. Um, like that That philosophy just really came from my mom. And she's a physician, but she's always had interests on the business side. Um, and so, like, she's really the one who encouraged me uh, to get into business. And I think, you know, once I got to college, uh, I was like, it's very clear that I'm, I'm going down the finance path and, and not during the medical field, which my dad wanted me to be a doctor very much.
0: Why... Why is it? Why was that book so influential to you as a kid? Why? Why did you fall in love with business? I mean, I, I think of what I loved in high school, and it was, you know, Pride and Prejudice. And you're there with rich dad, poor dad. <laughs> Actually, in middle school, it sounds like. Um, so, so what was? What's the appeal? What's the draw?
1: Um, well, first, I love math. That was always my best subject. So I'm, I'm really good at math. I like numbers. Um, that book in particular, I think it's. It was more of a mindset uh, about like why, you know, Robert Kiyosaki, his whole philosophy is that like being poor first starts in your mind, um, and that you have to change your mindset. And so he, you know, he talks about having real teachers versus fake teachers. And a part of the issue with the American education system is that we don't teach you how to do your taxes. We don't teach you how to have equity and ownership and all these like different structures. But the whole goal is like for you to teach, to get a job to make money to then do these things, but we're not actually teaching things we want you to do. And so his whole belief is that rich people don't want poor people to actually know these things, right? And so he like breaks down a lot of things, assets, liabilities, real estate into very simplified ways. And he tries to educate the normal person to understand how do rich people think and how do we break down these terminologies? Because like every industry, whether it's, you know, the medical field, legal field, finance field, you know, we create these terms like EBITDA, right? Which is basically cash.
0: What does that stand Um,
1: for? Earnings before interest, tax, appreciation, amortization. Oh boy. Okay. It's like the, it's like the the number one term in, in in finance, and particularly in private equity. But essentially it means cash flow. Right. But like every industry, you there's these terminologies, and the same is true in tax industry, like where you're creating barriers because if I can understand your language, then I don't need to pay you to do the work for me. Right. If people knew how to do their taxes, there would be no need for tax accounts. People people knew how to read legal jargon there'd be no need for lawyers and the same is true for bankers If people knew what there was and covenants there'd be no need for bankers
0: this reminds me this reminds me of why the protestant reformation changed everything right it was like if people knew how to read the bible the idea was like we can we can do this ourselves this, <laughs> but what you're outlining really is a, a kind of revolution
1: yeah so i think that you know that's his whole philosophy is um, he's had a number of books, but he basically like makes things very simplified. And so, at the middle school, obviously, you need it to be super simple. Uh, and I understood it, and I was like, "This makes a lot of sense." Um, I'm interested, and you know, I read a couple of his books, and I was like, "Let's learn some more." I don't read a lot of books; I don't like reading. Uh, so, reading a bunch of his books actually was a big deal for me.
0: <laughs> you know, you're talking about this kind of. Um divide that you became aware of early on between rich and poor, right? And and that links to a basis of knowledge and and a confidence, right? In in a kind of lexicon. Um, Do you think that race and skin color also line up along those lines? In season one of this podcast, we talked a lot about how black and brown communities don't grow up with the same familiarity of just financial literacy as some white communities.
1: Yeah, I mean, of, of I think, of course, I think every major pillar, kind of, if you look at all the major foundations, are typically focused on education, healthcare, financial literacy, etc. Uh, usually, there's some gender gap below that. There's typically a racial, racial gap. So, like the racial gap typically is exacerbated for for most pillars of of the countries, uh, the areas that we're focused on, and, and that's true for financial literacy. Um, I was fortunate that my mom was financially literate. Um, as a doctor, she would often tell me, you know, even though we're well off, middle class, upper class, like at any given moment, um, I could not be making income, right? So we used to go on these ski trips. Um, when I was a kid and she would always be afraid, like, you know, I don't want to go down this black diamond because if I hurt my hand, I literally can't work. And that always stuck with me. And it was actually a big reason I did want to go into business. Like I wanted to make money while I slept. I didn't want to have to work to make money. And I think I realized, even though my parents were well off as doctors, they had to work to make money, uh, every single moment. And if you enrich that dad, poor dad, like he talks about that, right. The, the way you create wealth, part of it, like wealth is like you make money not working, um, you can never work enough hours to, to become wealthy. And so I think that just became really clear for me uh, as my mom spoke about that. And so I think just like her realizing like she was well off, but there were just so many more layers and levels above her um, that she she wished she could get to that she could never get to as a doctor. Uh, I think it's really what inspired her to like want to learn more about the financial side. And then, you know, I was obviously the fortunate one to kind of live in that as she was learning for herself. She would teach me these things and talk to me about these things. But that really changed my mindset of wanting to be in a field where I didn't have to use my hands to, to make money. Like, I didn't want to be a salary employee. And she always told me like, your goal should be to not be an employee long term. Uh, and that's, you know, I didn't think I'd be my own boss before the age of 30. But I knew I would, I would not be my, I knew I'd be my own boss at some point in my life because that was just like very clear what I wanted to do as a kid. And my mom instilled that into me pretty early on.
0: Your mom sounds like a really cool lady
1: she's she's a rock star
0: <laughs> can we give her a shout out is she dr Pierre Jacques or did she
1: she's dr doc- dr kim smith dr
0: kim smith i love it um okay so you end up at hbs at harvard business school yeah
1: mm-hmm. after after northwestern so i went to college first <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go you're a northwestern wildcat um i went there too so i happen to know that oh nice um and then you end up at harvard Uh, what, what did your time at Harvard business school teach you about, uh, being as audacious as you turned out to be?
1: Yeah, I think to the point about the list earlier, right. Um, HBS is the the culmination of some of the smartest people around, around the globe, as well as some of the wealthiest people from around the world. And so I think just like every step in life, like where you, where you think you're the smartest. Uh, I like to go into rooms where, like, I'm no longer am. So, you know, whether it be high school, and obviously you're really smart. Then you go to college, and you're like, oh, like now everybody from around the world is coming to Northwestern, and then you go into investment banking. And now, you know, you're in finance, and everybody is really good at finance. And so, I think you know, going to Harvard Business School for me was seeing people who are in a bunch of different fields. You know, whether it's we had commanders, you know, commanders from the army. We had people who were in black ops. We had top uh you know consultants or finance people or people who ran family multi-billion dollar family businesses in asia or in south america uh and so that was really awesome for me cuz i'd been in finance for 4 years in new york and you know in new york it's finance fashion and so like you're kind of at the top industries in the city but now you come to this place where um like you're no longer on the top like people are like oh like that's that's cute like you work in finance like i run multi-billion dollar business you know for my family uh in China or in Brazil. And so I think it just gives you a whole different level of perspective and it humbles you to some extent and it pushes you um to do more and expand your horizons. And, and that that was the best for me the best experience was I met people from a global perspective and, and now I have friends. I was texting one of my friends yesterday um who's in Spain and one of my other friends who's in, in Canada. I, I never had I never had that before. Um, and so I think it just really opened my mindset and my perspective, and that was the best part about HBS, is just like getting the global experience and realizing that like when you live in New York, like it's not all just about like finance, and this isn't like the best industry and the one that makes you the most money, and people are doing a, a lot of different things all over the world.
0: So, so let's talk about people. People at this point know what VC means, right? Growing up, I did, I wouldn't have known what VC means, I n- but no people idea. know, right? But people now know. I think
1: it's more I mainstream.
0: It is more mainstream. I think my my 8-year-old knows what an entrepreneur is. It sounds sexy. It sounds like the stuff of, you know, of, of of a Netflix series, right? VC. What is what is the landscape? Like what is the role that venture capital plays in in the entrepreneurial world?
1: Yeah, it's it sounds sexy. It's a lot of work. <laughs> So Wait think, a second. You know, You're
0: not supposed to be working. You're supposed to be making money in your sleep, my friend.
1: Yeah. I still sleep, but <laughs> still got to work. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the the issue, you know, you've seen it lately, right? So 2010 is really when like VC kind of came to the forefront. I think it was partially because of the financial crisis. So there, there's always waves of industries, right? Pre-financial crisis, investment banking, was the hot finance industry. And then post-financial crisis, it's kind of been private equity and venture capital uh, and tech for sure. Like tech has definitely taken a lot of jobs from the finance industry. Um, And so I think, you know, part of it is that it's really easy to get into from an asset perspective because you don't need as much money to give entrepreneurs money, right? So traditionally speaking, if you're thinking about like private equity, which is billions of dollars that these funds have or hedge funds, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. For a venture capital fund, you can raise a five, $10 million fund and be a real player. Like You can be in any room. You can connect with people. You can say, hey, I'll give you $100,000. And so it's really opened the door to a lot of people who traditionally couldn't get into most finance industries in terms of like starting their own funds, which is actually why we started in venture. Right? We worked in private equity before business school. And a question we often get asked is, like, you don't have venture experience. Why are you raising a VC fund? Why don't you raise a private equity fund? To raise a private equity fund, you need $100, $200 million minimum today to like be of relevance. right? For venture capital, I can have a five to ten million dollar fund. And so when we were angel investing, we were writing twenty-five thousand dollar checks. This is our own personal money. We would each put in five thousand and it'd be twenty-five thousand total. Like founders would actually take our money, right? What other industry would somebody say, Hey, like I'll take twenty-five thousand dollars, do the legal work, put you on my cap table, share information, have phone calls with you. Right. You can't do that in most finance industries. So like venture capital is an industry where If you have a little extra money, and $25,000 obviously is significant for a lot of people, um, but if you have the money, you can give $25,000. Founders will talk to you, they'll give you their time, and they'll give you a piece of their business. And and that's really rare. I think that's probably what's led to the proliferation of venture capital much faster than these other industries that have been around for a longer time, and why it is more mainstream, because it can touch more people. Now, lower income, like you still can't get access because you're not a credit investor, but even for accredited investors, which is a $20,0 an hour plus salary, they oftentimes didn't make enough money to get into these under and in other industry other industries.
0: Will you describe for us what your industry looks like? Like to whom for the most part are venture capitalists giving money?
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> to be blunt, to whom would be white men? There you but go. I think from from a broader perspective, the VC industry traditionally has focus on tech product startups. Um, today, that usually means software is the way people say it to make it sound sexier.
0: So if if you had to kind of assign a number, uh, what, what percentage would you say of most venture capital investing goes toward people who aren't white men?
1: Um, Capital-wise, 4% deal
0: percent
1: Yeah, cap like from a capital perspective in terms of like deal numbers it's like 10 and 12.
0: and what percentage of investments are made by non-white or female identifying investors
1: so men i think are roughly like 88 percent of investors Um, so probably like including minorities and women, somewhere between 10 and 15% probably have investors. Now the partner level, that's even lower, obviously, um, but usually less than 15%. Uh, most, I think I saw a stat recently, um, it was like 65% of funds didn't have a a woman or black partner, like one woman or black partner.
0: Is that why you're doing this?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a big reason. I think, you know, so we worked at ICV, which I mentioned was a Black-owned private equity fund. And that was super eye-opening, right? And Jerry and I were mates, so we worked together. We started this while we were there. And so for us to, like, every day go in and see Black men with a billion-plus of capital investing, which most people never get to see. It's very rare. That's the fourth-largest Black-owned private equity fund in the country. Like, that really empowered us and was super inspiring for us and really is what gave us the confidence to say hey like it can be done like we every day we come to this office we see it done like why don't we like why don't we be the next icv why don't we do this for ourselves did uh, you see any black super... women no so the icv had five partners Four were black men one was an indian woman so i mean okay. yeah for sure like black women it's even more dire in the finance industry um one of my my friends keisha cash she she closed announced her fund uh Stop two days it. ago her
0: last name is cash
1: it is, it is. Oh, that's so good. Um, which was $55 million um, for her fund too. That's the largest um, single black woman fund adventure ever. And $55 million sounds like a lot of money, but when funds are raising billions of dollars, like it kind of gives you a comparison. And It just goes to like the, the capital gap, right? 1% of all assets globally are run by women or minorities. Like this is across 1%. all asset classes.
0: Mm-hmm wow um how much are we talking about like what's the aggregate number of dollars that we're dealing with when it comes to venture capital investments
1: so last year the number of dollars i got invested in the venture were i think roughly 180 billion um now
0: 180 billion i'm sorry i keep repeating these numbers because they are very <laughs> very, very big and sometimes but, very but small thing,
1: yeah so i think so one hundred and eighty billion sounds like a lot, right? But when you compare yes. that to so the largest private equity fund is Blackstone, um, Blackstone by itself manages five hundred billion dollars by itself, right the largest the largest wealth manage, wealth management company uh, manages two trillion dollars. This is one firm. and so venture, though it seems big, it is very small compared to real estate, private equity public markets. And so everything mm-hmm. is in perspective, um, which is why like the numbers can sound big, like, Oh, this black woman raised $55 million, uh, or even for us, right? Like we raised $40 million. Like that's, that's a big deal, obviously, but it's peanuts in the schemes of the investing world. I mean, this, you know, people are managers are making this for their salaries. And so I think you have to understand that. Yes. Like I'm not saying that what I've done is not successful, but I want to get what I deserve and like I know that the other managers and and a lot of top managers of color talk about this who are big um, like but like I should have more based on my performance and my peers who are doing worse than me are managing billions more than me and usually it's largely due to race and access to capital in in rooms that you're in.
0: What propels this structure? Why? Why is that the case?
1: There's, there's so many things, but I think, um, it's so institutionalized, right? Like the way this world works, it's such a black box venture and investors and fund managers. It's all a black box. Nobody really knows like a why white you're making decisions. Yeah, it, it is. It's a white black box. <laughs> so, so, um, and so as a result, because there's a lack of transparency, typically it's just very network driven. And I like this person and I feel like this person's gonna be successful. Um, and there's a lot of institutional barriers. And I think now people are beginning to take that down, but it's gonna take a long time. I think people really, the post George Floyd movement has been quite inspiring to see because it's, I've had more conversations in the last few months with non people of color about people of color issues than ever before in my life. But I also think people need to realize like this is something that the country has dealt with for since the beginning of time, so centuries. And this isn't going to change in the 2020 decade. This isn't going to be like a 10-year, now we have equal pay, and you know now the wealth gap is closed. Like This is going to take decades um, because there's 100-year head start for people who are in positions of power. And they're going to continue to try to maintain their positions of power. They're not going to just give it away because they're charity and they feel good about themselves. Uh, they're going to fight for it, right? And you're, you're seeing that in the political environment today. And so I think people have to understand, like, this is going to be a long fight. This is a great start. It's uh, an inflection point to inspire people who typically have never even thought about these topics or issues. But like, it's a long game. I think a lot of people, you know, I fear that people are going to burn out, you know, similar to uh, the Me Too movement, like diversity for the last five years has essentially been women and gender focused. And like, the VC data has not changed. It kind of went up and then it stayed at 3%. And actually last quarter was the worst quarter of female funding since 2007. Right. And that kind of dropped. Now, did it drop because there was fatigue? Did it drop because now all of a sudden people were, you know, focused on black lives? Who knows? But I think there is an issue when people can't focus on more than one injustice at a time. Like, why can't we focus on women's rights and black rights? Right. Right. So the whole point of the All Lives Matter movement, I think, is the whole reason it misses the point. Um, It's like my injustice, your injustice doesn't invalidate my injustice. And so, like, doing those injustices at the same time is really hard for people. And it's exhausting. And they're like, why does it this for women? Like, I don't have any more energy to do this for black people. Um, or like, you know, non-focus on black people and I'm we tired live in of- this
0: zero-sum culture, it yeah, seems like.
1: Right. You can only help one person at a time.
0: So what what ripple effects do you think this has?
1: Uh it makes it a lot harder <laughs> to get more done at the same time because whether it's you know, where am I putting my money from a contribution perspective, whether it's as a politician, where am I going to put, you know, what basket am I putting my eggs in to fight for? Because uh, I know there's only so many things I can win. So it just like, it, it constrains progress, right? And it makes progress really slow. And I think it's part of the frustration today is that people are like, why aren't, why aren't we farther along? Like, how is this 2020 for so many of these issues, whether it's the healthcare system, education, race, gender? I think it's because, like, there's decades of issues, right? The 60s was civil rights, and during Vietnam was about um, the war. And the last decade, I don't even really know what 2010s were about, but like, it's like you have these decades of periods where there's these topics. And, you know, right now for the Supreme Court, it's it's going to be on uh, Roe v. Wade. So, like, I think that that's the issue is that people are just, it's a, it's a one-system society, and we're a, two, and we're a two-party system, right? So each party chooses one or two things they focus on
0: do you think that even as people of color at your firm at harlem capital that you still have biases
1: oh for sure um and we definitely track we so like one of our we have seven core values one of our seven core values is is data drives decisions and we track everything so like early on three years ago um we track why we pass on founders and we were passing on women. So we, we put the reason, one of the reason is too early, which basically means you don't have enough revenue or no revenue at all. Um, one of the reasons we were passing on women um, was too early and it was 30% higher than men, right? So our past reason for women was 30% higher for too early. But what we saw in the data was that women actually had more revenue than men. And this is typically true for most startups. Uh, women generate more revenue typically because they have to because they can't raise as much capital as men. So like you need to raise more revenue to sustain your business. And so then we realized, like, oh, like this is a problem. Like, if we're going to pass, fine. But the reason should not be too early more than men if men have earlier businesses. So, like, we started digging into that. uh, And now today, like, it's on par. Like, we pass on women too early, the same as we pass on men. um, And we've been very focused on how do we get more women founders? So, 45% of the deals we see are now women founders, 38% of our of our portfolio is women founders. And so we're very focused on that because we understand if you don't change the top of the funnel, the deals you invest in will never change. It's so important for you to source women and diverse founders because in venture capital, people invest in 1% of companies. Every 100 companies I see, I invest in one, right? So if you're not seeing tens and hundreds of companies that are representing these populations, the likelihood of you investing is very little. If you see 10 black founders an entire year, then you have a very low probability chance yeah. of investing in one of those 10 black founders just because of the law of numbers. It's the way venture works. It's it's a numbers volume game.
0: Do you think other VC firms are doing what you're doing? Do you think they go back and and look at the trends and why they say no and, and try to become aware of their biases?
1: Um, I think people definitely, the best firms definitely analyze their data. So we actually have our, we do quarterly deal reviews. So we have our meeting today, this afternoon, um, which is why you I nervous? know all these. It's, no, it's why I know all these stats because I, I just had to put the deck together. Okay, but um, so I think the best VC firms they analyze their data. Um, most VC firms do not, because uh, a lot of VC firms don't have the time, number of people. It's not focused focus for them. Even the best VC firms did not did not analyze their data by race and gender. Um, now they are, and I've had multiple conversations with my friends who are partners at these top firms um, post George Floyd and you know now it's like oh like we should we should look at this data like on a by race like one thing that we do and most vc firms have this like they have stages of diligence right so you take a call for founder you put a memo together you invest in the company for us there's four stages of the funnel and we always look at by race and by gender what is the conversion ratio by stage of diligence right so like we're trying to basically figure out like is there any bias that we're taking at each stage of the funnel um, while we're making our investment decisions. 99% of VC firms do not do that by race and gender, almost a guarantee. Do you think
0: that's a mistake on their part?
1: I think it is, but I don't think people actually even thought that it was an issue, right? I think, especially in the venture world, people in venture, a lot of the top funds, especially the older ones, fundamentally believe in meritocracy, right? They fundamentally believe that the best founders always get funded. Like that has been, you know, some of the, the description and people that people describe all the time is like money is green, the best founders will get funded, and I think people now are realizing um, that that's just fundamentally not true. And the same is true for for everything in life, for jobs, for school. Like even at Harvard yeah. Business School, everybody was smart, but like I think what I also realized was like a lot of these people are like are pretty average, right? And you know, not to describe like you're smart, but like are you like the super? Are you a PhD rocket science? No. Mm-hmm. Like, do you deserve to be here? Yes. But like, are you smarter than, the, you know, some of my other friends? No. And so I think you just begin to realize, like, it, there's a lot of things that aren't about meritocracy. Yeah. Um, it kind of like what colleges you go to, what's your family's money, like all that impacts everything for schools, to jobs, to funding. Um, I've always known that. And my mom is always like instilling in me. And as a person of color, every person of color knows this, like you're told by your mom when you're young, like you have to work twice as hard to get the same thing. And you just know that as a kid, like you just grow up, it's same for women. Like, it's I mean, like li- dancing liter- in heels literally, backwards. Literally for like the pay gap, like I literally have to work twice as hard as you to make the same amount of money, right? Like there's like there's a literal and there's a figurative. And so I think that has been instilled in us for a long time. And we, I just never have believed in meritocracy personally. The, the American dream to me uh, has never been about like hard work leads to success.
0: What's your American dream?
1: My like personal goal is to create the most minority millionaires of all time that's like my personal mission because i think what you know i don't value in my it's funny because i've always liked i've always loved the money since i was a kid my mom was like at some point you won't like money you'll realize like money doesn't solve everything and i think at some point my mom realized like oh like you're never gonna not love money but i love money because of what it allows and it allows you to have the freedom of thought and so when I think about even for us, like when we were raising the fund, all we can think about was like, okay, we have to get this money. Like I need to like, can you give me money? Can, it's all you're thinking about. And once you have it, and now I can focus on the business. Now I can focus on helping our founders. Now I can focus on developing the ecosystem. It gives me the freedom to just like take risk and to to think about things that I couldn't think about versus like I'm trying to put food on the plate. I'm trying to like have money to like pay my employees. And that to me is like the the power of of, of wealth and money is like, you just have the ability to like be free. Um, I think you know wealth has a lot of meaning. It's not just about money. Uh, my my wife she's a she's a consultant and she has this phrase with wealth and it's about time. It's about health. Uh, it's about freedom, right? And there's so many. So I think there's a lot of things outside of just the money. But I think the money component often enables you to have the health that leads to great wealth, the, the, the time that leads to freedom, uh, and that's really important for me. I think a lot of people of color are constantly working and women as well just working so hard to get to the end but it's like the journey is the best part right so when i when I have a goal like of raising a billion dollars in 20 years if i raise it great but if i don't like what did i learn during that 20-year period mm-hmm. like that's that's really what's most important is like the journey of getting to that point and the goal is just the end the end game uh, and oftentimes your goal changes during those 20 years because in 20 years is no longer important to you
0: that's right yeah what did you learn whom did you help What does a more equitable business landscape look like, do you think, for minority and women-owned businesses?
1: Um, I mean, I think to start, you have to get more capital to fund managers of color and women um, who will then pass it down. I do not think that the existing institutions are going to be the ones that solve this issue. Um, I think you've seen this with and other industries outside of venture capital, like finance or tech. It's gotten better in tech, you know, Where Google goes from 2% to 3%, the, you know, people of color or whatever their numbers are, uh, and typically these aren't in the engineering side or whatever it may be. And the same in finance, but you, you kind of hit this, this this ceiling. Same in Ivy Leagues, right? Ivy League schools have been 6% Black students for as long as I can remember. And so I, I just don't think the existing institutions are going to be the one in any near term to solve these issues. I think they'll get better because they have to because people are now keeping them accountable. I think they just fundamentally have ceilings to like what they think they have to do. I think it's going to take women minorities to solve these problems on their own. I think you need more funds and more firms that are run by women and minorities um, who care about this and it's in their DNA. Like we always say diversity is in our DNA because uh, we've lived this experience. It's important mm-hmm. to us, versus like somebody who all of a sudden is like, oh yeah, like diversity matters or diversity leads to better returns. Like, I'm not doing this because diversity leads to better returns. I'm doing this because diversity is like what I care about. And I think ultimately, um, I was talking to one of my interns last night. Like, you will never beat somebody who is doing their life's work. You, you can always you can always work as hard as you want, but like if somebody's doing their life's work or doing um, what they what they love, like you'll never beat them. It's almost impossible, especially if they're good and they're smart, right? And so I just think for a lot of people of color and women, like this is just something that's fundamentally really important to them um, because they lived it. They saw their parents go through it. They were immigrants, or their parents were immigrants, whatever it may be. And so I just don't think the same passion level will happen. You know, I applaud these firms for trying and they should do it something, but I don't think long-term that's going to lead to the change that we're going to need. We've been, you know, this is something that's been happening for decades and we're still here at 2020, like still feels like we've gone very, like we, we've run one meter or hundred meter dash.
0: As a pillar of the local communities that they're a part of, U.S. Bank takes on a crucial role in providing equality of opportunity for small business owners of all stripes. To learn more about how and why, we spoke to an old friend from last season with a new job title. Here's Greg Cunningham. Hi, Greg. Hi, Faith. How are you? I think I I'm great. I'm so happy to talk to you. And I think you deserve a a mazel on uh, a little promotion, right?
2: A little one, a little one. Things have happened, you know, since we talked last and yeah.
0: Well see, that's what this podcast does for people's careers.
2: (laughs) Clearly, clearly. I mean, (laughs) it has been a catalyst for some great things to happen for me, so. I thank you, which is why well, I'm back. Like let's keep going. <laughs> let's just keep going. No ceilings, let's Faith. No ceilings.
0: <laughs> you you went from Chief Diversity Officer and Senior Vice President to Chief Diversity Officer and Senior Executive Vice President. Wow. So I'm just wondering, in your home office there, yeah. did you did you make a new corner?
2: No, you are know, are you in the
0: corner of your home no,
2: office? No, yeah, like I branch, I went from the corner to like my daughter's bedroom. So like that's progress. for Okay. Me. Um, okay. You know, are there posters on the wall? There's 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 posters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to take down some posters. Her t- taste are a little different, but no, it, it's uh. It's been, it's been a really cool time uh, for the company. Um, yeah. The role has been elevated to the managing committee at the bank. Um, I now report to the chairman, president, and CEO of the company. And so it is a, a real milestone for our company faith in terms of how seriously we are taking this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I... I, it, it, T- Greg, tell me tell me what
0: that means because I am not I am not of corporate culture in the way in the way that you are. So the fact that you now are a direct report to U.S. Bank CEO Andy Siciri yes, um, h- how does that how does that change things or give give things more momentum?
2: It means faith that we are talking about it as a strategic priority for the company that we aren't talking about it as a program or something that is sort of a nice thing to do. We are having conversations at the highest level of the organization every day. And, you know, I have a seat at the table along with um, all of the other direct reports of the CEO. And so we're just having different conversations that are more about how do we integrate this into the core business every single day versus it being an afterthought, And when we're establishing strategic priorities for the organization, this is one of them. Um, And that feels good.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Would you say that this is like an incredible amount of speed with which this change has has occurred? I mean, look, I talked to you. I know you remember because it was a painful moment in our country. And there continues to be pain around it. We talked right after George Floyd was murdered in your city, yes, in Minneapolis, yes. And we talked several times last summer, yes, um, amidst amidst the Black Lives Matter movement, right. And and you're and you know you were working on this stuff then. Um, c- could you have imagined a year ago that that things would have moved so fast in the right direction?
2: No, I wouldn't have. But I'm I'm so thrilled that they have because this is the necessary change that has to happen is we have to you have to you, you have to make it a um, a part of the leadership expectation of every single person in the organization that you will embrace this um, as a priority not only for your business but for you personally. And I would not have imagined this a year a year ago but I also asked the fundamental questions to you, faith that I think it's important for all of us to ask why not? you know why why didn't we do it before and those are the harder questions to answer and those are the yeah. ones that require the most reflection is there's so much attention being paid to social justice and racial inequality now and rightfully so um but you do have to stop for a moment and say well what took us so long and you know it was it was a shame that we had to have this incident with George Floyd and that it happened during covid-19 but I think your answer to that question of why didn't we do this before is a really important one um, for all of us. Are you
0: all are you all explicitly asking that?
2: Yeah. Yes, you oh. have to. You have to. Are
0: these I mean, is that conversation asked on Zoom calls and people all kind of chime in with their thoughts? Not, like what What does that conversation look like?
2: You know, it it looks like a lot of silence and it looks like a lot of. Mm you know, that uncomfortable moment that we're all getting used to, you know, we're building stamina around that faith. Like we're building stamina around those moments where there, there really aren't good answers, but we have to talk about them and we have to lean into this notion of this is just something that's really tough. And I have to sit with that. And I have to reflect on that as a leader and go forward. Um, because I'm, this is not about, shaming and blaming people or trying to put people on the spot. But it does require people to sort of do that deep self-reflection. That's the only way we will move forward is when you lean into that discomfort.
0: Can you tell us about the role that U.S. Bank is going to play in the lives of entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs of color?
2: Yeah, I, you know, my, my, my vision and my hope is that we can we can level the playing field um, to the extent that those issues I mentioned, the the access to capital, access to technical assistance, access to valued and trusted relationships um, with financial services institutions, that we can close all of those gaps. And so what that means is we're going to have different conversations. It means that not only will we um, make investments on the philanthropic side, because um, there's an important role for philanthropy to play, Faith, um, but it, it, it should not be the, the sole way that we invest in communities of color. I want to see organizations like mine and others make more equity investments um, in small businesses um, combined with philanthropy. Um,
0: yeah, you know, Greg, I imagine, look, we all love philanthropy. I I love when my, I mean, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged lady and I love when my dad sends me a birthday check. Right. (laughs) But, but, but there is, there's something so much more spiritually elevating than being given money. Uh, you know for free there's yeah. something more spiritually elevating to a community to be told we're investing in you
2: yes we, you're
0: going to take what we give you and you're going to you're going to make it grow
2: and we got some skin in the game you know and i think yeah. that's part of it yeah. is when when we have some skin in the game then that's a real partnership and so that's you know probably the short answer to your question is i want to see us engage in more what i would call partnership and that means having um, what a great friend of mine, Robert Blackwell, always characterizes as meaning, doing meaningful business and treating these communities not as deficit communities, but seeing them as asset based communities, that there's incredible assets worth cultivating and worth nurturing and. And and not simply driving past these communities every day and seeing them as other, but seeing them as our communities and making investments Um, that we've got some skin in the game with as well, and not just through philanthropy as we've talked about.
0: You know, we talked with Henri about how um, singular it is and eye-opening when there is a Black entrepreneur coming to him and his colleagues to ask for venture funds. And and they're in a room with Black people who want to... Give them money, yes. right? Who wanna be investors. Yes. And it you know, it echoes what you and I talked about last season, that when people of color see you in this role. Yes. In in a huge place like US Bank. It's these are these are these are me this is meaningful representation, right? Yes. And it's more than representation, because you're saying it's, it, you know, you go from representation to actual skin in the game, to investment.
2: It, it's adopting, you know, it, it's mutual responsibility. Um, it's a Swahili word I love. We actually named a scholarship after it. It's called Ujima, and it means— Ujima? Ujima. It means collective responsibility. And, you know, that to me is underlying all of this, is we have to have collective responsibility for each other and for our communities— and the, the racial wealth gap is something that all of us have some ownership and we all have a stake in it. Um, and so I want to see us begin to think about, you know, these communities as assets, potential assets that deserve to be cultivated, um, that ultimately will lift us all up.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.